Amen. Oh, well, I think we're still muted. Can you go on mute? Yep, I'm on it. I muted us. For some of you, that might be a better statement. <laughs> She's going to unmute. But I'll yell. One of the things I love about living in California is how happy people are when it rains. As we gather in this place, I invite you to settle down, to come fully here, arrive here. Take about three deep breaths. There we go. So that your awareness might open, that you might recognize the presence of the Holy Spirit right here, right now. Friends, let us worship in beloved community. Standing or sitting, let us join in the call to worship. The walls are strong here. We trust they can hold us safe. The doors are open here. We trust there is a place for us. The light is bright here. We trust we will see and be seen.
Amen. You, you may be seated. Welcome. Welcome to Westminster. It's a joy to be together. On this rainy day, I'm guessing we probably have more people joining us online, perhaps than usual, so I'm going to welcome those seated behind that camera there. It's good to be with you. If you're visiting with us, a special welcome to you. We do have t coffee and tea and some snacks set up in our Finley Hall, which is just right out the sanctuary and to the left. So I invite you after worship to head over there for some snacks and a chance to greet one another, chance maybe to get to know someone you don't already know. So let's join together now in our community prayer. Let us pray. Promising God. We trust our experiences are safe in you. Our pain has a place to go. Our crying now is not into a void. Forgive us for thinking we need to be forgiven for voicing our pain or injustice or the undue suffering of others. Hear our cries, join in our struggles, empower those working for goodness with strength compassion, creativity, and love. Grant us hope where and when we need it most. Amen. Our prayers continue in quiet. Amen. Friends, know that God is always with us, never giving up on us. Know also that God always loves us, both in our times of pain as well as in our times of joy. Know that God always forgives us, setting us free to love and to be loved. Thanks be to God. Amen. As we continue with our time of prayer, uh, now is the time when we like to share with one another, share our joys and concerns so that we can be in prayer together. So if you have something to share with us, just raise your hand and let us know. Yeah, Barb. Barb offers prayers for all the asylees, all the refugees seeking refuge here in our country. Others? We prayed for our Kentucky mission team by name last week, but I'd continue to hold them in our prayers as their work starts tomorrow, and they'll be in Kentucky working for a week. We simply pray for them and for all the good work they are doing there. Yeah, Catherine? Yes, blessings for the rain. Yes, blessings for the rain. Amen. Others? All right. Let's have just a couple moments of quiet and then we'll join together in the Lord's Prayer. So let us be in prayer together. Gracious God, as we gather and worship today, we remember that your steadfast love is our strong refuge. Your boundless grace is our sheltering presence, and we give you thanks. And hear us now as together we pray the prayer that your Son taught us, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. as we forgive our debts. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen.
This is the third Sunday of the month, which means it's our birthday blessing Sunday. So if you have a birthday in September, or if maybe you missed a blessing in a previous month, I invite you to come forward for a special blessing. Happy birthday to all of you. As we move into mid-September, I, of course, start thinking about the fall season. I think this week is the equinox, right? So in uh, looking for something to share with you today, I went to a, a poetry anthology called A Poem for Every Autumn Day. It's actually an anthology uh, with poems written mostly for, for young people. And I found this one, which made me chuckle, and therefore I had to share it with you. Um, The title is, This is Just to Say, and it's by William Carlos Williams. And he says, I have eaten the plums that were in the icebox, and which you were probably saving for breakfast. Forgive me, they were delicious, so sweet and so cold. So I share this with you, not to encourage you to take things that belong to other people. Don't do that. But I share it with you to encourage you to look for those sweet moments of joy in life. You know, that nice, cold, juicy plum, the beautiful, rainy day that we're having. You know, those joys that come about every moment of our lives that sometimes we might miss. I just encourage you to take hold of them in this coming year and have a happy, happy birthday. Amen. All right, you may be seated, and I will invite any of the children worshiping with us to come join us here at the front. Conrad, you feeling brave? You're welcome to stay there if you want. Oh, yeah, I mean, yeah. I'll we, join you. We, we had children at 8.30. I, I, don't, yeah, know what to, I don't know what to do. Uh, that's okay. I'll, I don't think we need to sit if, we're, if nobody's down here with us. So. I mean, we Take could, it away! I mean, we could, just you and I. <laughs> little staff meeting. Uh, but children are children at heart. I, I will share just a little bit about um, this next week because it's important to share with the whole congregation, regardless of ages. I'll take this off since there's no kids up front. As you heard earlier, there are 10 of us who will be doing work in Kentucky this, uh, this week. Most of them are already there. Tonight, I'll fly overnight, and I'll join them in the morning. And we will work all week on homes that were damaged during tornadoes uh, a, a year or more or so ago. And you might be wondering, whether you're young or you're a little bit older, well, why would you do that? You all could just save all the money you're going to spend on plane tickets and lodging and food and just send it to them. It's a fair question because that money might go farther if we just sent it rather than we spent it on ourselves to get there. But we don't just do these kinds of trips uh, to provide measurable help in terms of boards nailed and meals provided and so on and so forth. We do it in part to help others because Jesus' example is to help others. So in that way, we're helping to bring the kingdom of God or a sign of hope or a sign of the kingdom of God to people who've had it kind of tough. We also do it, though, because we believe God is already there. You didn't know God lived in Kentucky. (laughs) But we believe God's already there and doing work, and we're going to see it because we, too, need to be reminded that the kingdom of God is coming and is present. And so in that sense, we're the project we're building, too. And three, part of the reason we're going is to connect people that might not normally connect. Some folks in rural Kentucky with some folks in the Bay Area of California. Now, if you're a school kid out there, maybe you uh, have some thoughts about kids who go to your rival school. 
right? And you assume some nasty things about them. And then you meet somebody from that school. And you realize, well, they're not so bad. They seem pretty nice. And they're secretly saying to their friends, hey, they're not so bad either. And if you're a young person, one of the things you may have noticed is that the adults in this country right now say a lot of not nice things about each other. So part of our job is to go meet with one another so we can break some of those not nice things we're saying. So it's not just about building houses. It's about rebuilding our family together. So one thing you can do, even if you can't fly to Kentucky tonight, is in your own life, you can think about, well, what can I do to bring a little bit of God's hope to somebody? Small ways, big ways. What can I do to notice where God is already working in the world? And what can I do to connect with somebody so that we build a stronger bond and say and think kinder things about one another? All right, do we need to sing them out? We have some people going to Sunday school. We should probably still sing. So if you're going to go, or if you've decided you're just done with church, go now in peace. Go now in peace. May the love of God surround you everywhere, everywhere you may go. The first scripture reading is Psalm 79, verses 1 through 9. Listen for what the Spirit is saying. O oh God, the nations have come into your inheritance. They have defiled your holy temple. They have laid Jerusalem in ruins. They have given the bodies of your servants to the birds of the air for food. The flesh of your faithful to the wild animals of the earth they have poured out their blood like water all around Jerusalem, and there was no one to bury them. We have become a taunt to our neighbors, mocked and derided by those around us. How long, O oh Lord, will you be angry forever? Will your jealous wrath burn like fire? Pour out your anger on the nations that do not know you and on the kingdoms that do not know your name. For they have devoured Jacob and laid waste his habitation. Do not remember against us the iniquities of our ancestors. Let your compassion come speedily to meet us, for we are brought very low. Help us, O God, in our salvation for the glory of your name. Deliver us and forgive our sins in your name's sake. This is holy wisdom, holy word. Thanks be. Thanks be to God. I should have mentioned that time of discovery that will also be joined by Westminster members, the Sayers family, who've been living in D.C. for the last year or two. And so how lovely will it be to meet with Peter and Evelyn and now Katie as of a couple of days ago, their, um, their daughter in the middle of the country. It's such a visible sign that the church really expands beyond geography. Uh, I should also notice or note too that there are some young people who are staying in worship. And you should know if you're a parent, your young people are always welcome in worship. They get to choose whether it's Sunday school. And the dirty little secret is the preacher preaches to who's in the room. So if there's a wider range of people in the room, then the, the sermons start to address a wider range, even subconsciously. So it's a gift when we have kids who stay in. I used to stay in sometimes uh, to listen to the sermon rather than going to Sunday school. I don't think I actually listened to the sermon, but there was something about just getting 20 minutes of quiet each week that was valuable to even me as a teenager. So uh, that's okay, too. God doesn't just speak through me, but through the gaps between my words. The second reading is in similar tenor to the first. Listen for what the Spirit may be saying to us this morning. This is from Jeremiah 8, 18 to 9, 1. My joy is gone. Grief is upon me. My heart is sick. Hark the cry of my poor people from far and wide in the land. Is the Lord not in Zion? Is her king not in her? 
Why have they provoked me to anger with their images, with their foreign idols? The harvest is past, the summer is ended, and we are not saved. For the hurt of my poor people, I am hurt. I mourn in dismay has taken hold of me. Is there no balm in Gilead? Is there no physician there? Why then has the health of my poor people not been restored? Oh, that my head were a spring of water and my eyes a fountain of tears so that I might weep day and night for the slain of my poor people. This too is holy wisdom, holy word. Thanks be to God. Last week, or a couple of weeks ago, you may remember I, I made reference to a series of sermons a colleague of mine was doing on sayings that Jesus never said that we treat as gospel. And there are many of them. One I don't think we referenced, but could have, is this. God only gives us what we can handle. Yeah, many of us have said that. Now, let's be generous before we be snarky. Well, maybe we shouldn't even be snarky, but let's be realistic with your expectations about me. From a generous point of view, that's an attempt to take difficult things in stride, to roll with it, to not be defeated by what's tough and seems insurmountable in the moment. And I think we can all laud that kind of positive attitude. Beyond that, though, I think we can also recognize that it's not always the most helpful thing to say, particularly to somebody who's struggling, because if they've shared with you their struggles, they're indicating to you in so many words, I can't handle this. And when we say God only gives us what we can handle, we're saying you're wrong, and there's no place for your pain here. I don't want to hear it. It doesn't belong. Well, Jesus never said that in the Bible. What is in the Bible, all over the Bible, in fact, is lament. Longing, crying out in pain. You heard a beautiful example, if not painful, in the 79th Psalm that Elizabeth read, here the people are crying out, having been invaded by a foreign invader, the temple having been defiled, which is not just like somebody coming and ransacking the church. The ancient Jews believe God lived in the temple. So elevate the desecration of the church by a hundredfold. Okay? Bodies are strewn about, left for the vultures. That's the kind of pain we're talking about. Jesus, when he's being crucified, the Gospels say that he cried out, quoting the 22nd Psalm, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? A cry of abandonment and betrayal by the one we say is God's son. The Psalms are full of laments. In fact, it's a whole genre of psalms, lament psalms, and by some counts, two-thirds of the 150 psalms in the canon are laments. Now, that probably will surprise some of you because you don't tend to hear them in church. And it's not just because we're avoidant of hard feelings, though there's probably some of that has worked its way in, but it's because many churches follow a lectionary, a signed order of readings that goes over three years, and the lectionary disproportionately excludes lament psalms and sad texts. Not because it wants to be avoidant of those feelings, but because the, the weekly lectionary assumes that we're reading scripture all week long and experiencing the fullness of the canon. And then Sunday is like a mini Easter every week. It's a celebration. It's called the Lord's Day. It's a mini resurrection. So we read celebratory texts. But the reality is many people only encounter the scriptures on Sundays. And so if that's true, you're missing the fullness of that experience that's detailed in the canon. And I would say that's detailed in life. Now, if you're wondering why 
what I begin basically the fall, I know our kickoff was last week with the in-gathering, but why would we start a new year essentially with a sermon that's based on the text that starts, my joy is gone, grief is upon me, my heart is sick. Well, today begins stewardship season when we ask you to donate money to the church. And thus, for many of us, our joy seems drained at... No, I'm kidding. I, sh I shouldn't joke about stewardship. I mean, we believe in what we're doing here, I hope. So we shouldn't, we shouldn't be bashful about asking for folks to give. No, the real reason it's right to begin a year this way, just as right as it is to begin on a celebratory note, is because we want to send a message that the full range of the human experience is welcome in a house of prayer. It belongs in the life of faith. It belongs in a spiritual community. It belongs in the sacred connection of prayer. You can go almost anywhere in society and have your happiness affirmed, have your successes applauded, have your wealth uh, cheered for, when you have it all together or you look like you have it all together for that to be reinforced over and over again. But where can you bring your broken places to? Or your uncertain places or the places you're doubting or not sure or your regrets or your embarrassments or just where you're weak or things are confusing. Where else can you bring that into a space of acceptance and non-judgment other than therapy? except the church, which is cheaper than therapy. No, <laughs> but brings a different dimension than the therapeutic realm, as important as the therapeutic realm is, a communal dimension, a dimension of inviting the sacred and the, and the divine God into the mix. It's beautiful to begin that way, to say all of it is welcome here. Now, this year, actually the last year or two, the session has been hard at work uh, going through some strategic uh, matters to try to get really clear about who we are and why we're here and what we want to prioritize. Because there are many choices to be made, good things we could be doing, but what are the things that we're called particularly to be about here? And from time to time, you've seen some of the products of that workshop in your bulletin, such as today, where we have our purpose statement, our vision statement, and our new mission statement included. And I'll direct your attention to our vision statement, which says this, our vision is to gather the seeking, the disillusioned, and the faithful, and to equip them for lives of meaning, service, and love. Now think of those three groups, of who we are called, we believe, to bring together the seeking, the disillusioned, and the faithful. Two of those three groups have something up in the air still. It's not that they have it all figured out or have it all together. They're seeking, which means they're looking for something that in part they haven't found yet, or we haven't found yet. They're disillusioned. Oh, they've seen something, but what they've seen has either been unsatisfying or has scarred them on some level. And many spiritual places and peoples and movements hurt people. So think of that. Two-thirds of our charge is to gather those who wouldn't fit the have-it-all-together kind of appearances model. And sadly, the church, the wider church, has pervaded that, is what it, what it means to be a part of a community. Part of what we're doing here is trying to counter that narrative and say, no, 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 your, your whole self belongs here. Some of you have reported to me that you've benefited greatly from an app called 10% Happier. I don't know if any of you have tried this before, but some people have said it's really been helpful. I think it helps, uh, I think it's probably based in gratitude practices and some just really practical things you can do to elevate your level of happiness. I'm sure none of us need to be any happier here, right? Can't imagine that would be the case. I would love us to develop an app that is 10% more spiritually honest, 10% more truthful. Spiritual communities could do wonders with that. 
because truth-telling is essential to the spiritual life. How can you grow if you can't be honest about where you are and what's happening? Is that a failure? That's a success. How can you address things that are wrong or broken or not working well in your life or in your family or in the community or in our society if we can't name what's broken? Without finger-pointing and lining up and, and bashing, but just honestly naming, okay, here's what's, here's what's not working. Truth-telling is essential to the spiritual life, even if the truths are painful, sad, confusing. And you could say, oh, isn't this being too negative? You're holding on too much to the negative stuff. We get negative all week long. We're bombarded with it. Can't we just come here and hear happiness? Fair question, actually. You get plenty of that out there. However, it's, it's precisely in being honest about what we're really experiencing that we release those negative emotions hold on us. That's how we're freed from them. Not by ignoring them, but by acknowledging, about saying, I see you, I hear you, I honor you, and I want to work with you and through you, and therefore you can let go of your stranglehold on me. So it's essential, actually, if we're going to make any kind of progress on that kind of work. It's not holding on too negatively. It's opening ourselves to something better. And all authentic prayer is a form of opening if the prayer is truth-telling, if it's honest. Think of that for now as the primary measure of whether it's a good prayer. Is it honest? Is it honest? Because if it's honest, it opens up a pathway to God for some kind of transformation or change or movement. So we've talked a lot about lament psalms, crying out in our pain to God. Here's another one that's an honest kind of prayer that you probably thought was you're not supposed to do. It's not a, what a good Christian does. Anybody heard the term imprecatory prayer? This is why you pay to go to seminary, so you can learn words like imprecatory. <laughs> imprecatory prayer is when you pay for bad things to happen to your enemies. Isn't that awesome? Right? And it's all over the Bible. Now, you might think, wait a minute, wait a minute. We're followers of Jesus here. Jesus said, love your enemies. Jesus said, pray for your enemies. What's going on here? Well, let's take a, a step back. Remember, what's the measure, at least for today? A good prayer is an honest prayer. So put yourself in a situation in which you might be tempted to pray hurtful things to someone else. I started working on this uh, for today uh, three weeks after Russia invaded Ukraine, back in February. Now, at the time, I mean, we may now be pleasantly surprised at how things are going there, the courage of folks to repel their invaders. But you remember how scary that was at the time? Um, we prayed and sang in this church, and people cried about what was happening there. And even though it appears cautiously that there may be a successful repelling of the invaders there, think of the loss, the loss of life, both of Ukrainians and of Russians. Think of the destruction of global food supply, of energy, of destruction of property, of cultural symbols, the ripping apart of societies. Think of the pain. Put yourself in that place. Someone has come to take everything you've ever known or worked for or had or loved and take it, and you and your children. Imagine that. Tell me you would not have something to say about those people. If you are emotionally honest, right? And we can probably think of less dramatic examples of that. So it's honest. And that's the qualification for good prayer. Secondly, there's a difference be between praying for hurt on one's enemy and actually going out and inflicting it. 
And I don't even mean in self-defense, but aggressively going out and returning evil for evil, violence for violence. There's a difference. Because, in fact, one could make the case by in praying for it, what you're doing is you're saying, I have a capacity and an inclination for violence within me, O God, and I want to hand it to you. And you can deal with it. The Apostle Paul quotes, I think it's Deuteronomy, it's in the Old Testament for sure, the line that says, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. And what Paul is saying is, that's God's domain. Wrath, vengeance, revenge, punishment. I don't want to be involved in that. I'm tempted to be involved in it. I want to hand it to you, God, and release it to you. And in your time and in your way, you take care of it. That's actually quite liberating. And it just might be the exact ticket that it takes you in your moment of emotional raw honesty to move you from that place of wanting to inflict vengeance yourself to the place where you can begin to pray for your enemy and maybe even love them. So imprecatory prayer is actually about moving you into a new space as much as it is ordering a divine hit. N.T. Wright is a New Testament scholar, and there's a website devoted to his teachings and his writings, and Dr. Glenn Pacquiam is a contributor, and he wrote an article summarizing what I think are Wright's thoughts on this, or at least inspired by Wright's writings, uh, five things that he thinks we should know about lament as a form of faith, a form of prayer. Number one, he says lament is a form of praise, not complaint, of praise. In fact, he says the Hebrew word for lament in the, in the scriptures is tehillim, which means praises. You're praising God when you're lamenting. You might say, whoa, whoa, it's, lament seems like anything but praise. But there's a distinction drawn between complaint, which assumes the worst about God. You don't care. You don't do anything. It doesn't matter to you. A God that doesn't care and punishes the righteous. And lament, which assumes the best about God. Your heart breaks when justice is not fulfilled, when your people hurt. It appeals to a God in whom we trust. That's praise. Two, lament is proof of the relationship. I remember once hearing someone say, you know the relationship's in trouble when what happens? When you fight? When you go silent. It's when you know you're in trouble. When the, when the talking stops. Maybe, maybe you, uh, like me, were a mediocre athlete, and you knew you were, I thought I'd get more laughs out of that. Uh, you knew you were in trouble when? When the coach yelled at you? When the coach stopped. When, they, when they're yelling at you, even though I don't think that really works, it's an indication that they see something in you. When they stop, they've just given up. You're not worth the energy. The silence is what you fear, right? You want to keep the noise going. Pakiam uses the example of um, orphanages in other parts of the world. Babies are lined up in cribs in a big room. And you know what's interesting about those rooms, he says, is they're quiet. Why are they quiet? Because the babies have learned that nobody's coming when they cry. When you cry, it's proof of the relationship. Keep crying. It reinforces the relationship. Three, lament is a pathway to intimacy with God. It's not a breakdown. It's the pathway. You don't have a real relationship of any depth if all you do is the happy stuff. You just talk about the happy stuff. Right? We're intimately connected with people when we undergo some suffering or some pain or some ordeal. That's how we grow closer to one another. For lament is a prayer for God to act. It's more than a venting of our frustrations, letting them out just into the ethers. That, that's helpful too. It assumes there's a recipient. Now I know people have 
wide range of beliefs on whether and to what degree and in what forms God intervenes in history. I probably can't solve that for you in the next 30 seconds. But part of the teaching here is that in a prayer of lament, part of what you're opening yourself to is the possibility of a response. It's an invitation for God to act. And it's an invitation back to you to join in God in the acting. It's how we participate with God, which leads to number five. Lament is a participation in the pain of others. You're not just crying for your own suffering. Lament is what connects you to the sufferings of others, which is why praying the Psalms has always been a big part of the tradition. Martin Luther's big spiritual enlightenment came not by reading the New Testament, but by reading the Psalms, even though those are literally the prayers of other people. Now, how many of us have literally been pursued by captors or invaders or had to keep watch over the night shift and wait for the sun coming up as a sign of safety on a battlefield. Some, I know some here have served in the military and have kept the night watch. Most of us have not fled from enemies, except in the playground, maybe, right? Nerf battles. But the value of praying those prayers is it connects you to someone else's predicament which then makes you think about the predicaments of others. And it opens your heart and inclines your heart toward them and changes your orientation to the world. It invites God's compassionate response and cultivates your own. There's someone in this congregation who is fond of saying one of the things they appreciate about faith and believing in God is that it, it's someone to whom to direct their thanks. I have so many good things. I love that I get to say thank you to someone who's responsible for it. You might add as a corollary, one of the gifts of faith is you have someone to whom to cry. To tell when it's not all right, or you're not all right, or it's falling apart, or you just can't get it together, or you just don't know anymore. We're not here to repeat the trope that God only gives us what we can handle. We're here to live into the truth that whatever we have, God can handle. And none of it's off limits. In prayer, in community, in faith. All of it's in bounds. And if we can go there, then our hearts just open right up to face the world more lovingly, with greater compassion. So if nothing else, leave knowing there is a place for your pain here and here. Amen.
You may be seated. Because we believe so strongly that the world is in desperate need for places where you can bring your whole selves, we feel compelled to invite you to support what this place is and what it stands for. And to that end, I invite Mary Beth Culler forward for a moment for stewardship. Thank you, Rob. Good morning. I have to tell you that when I came to the 8.30 service, um, I thought, as I looked around, now these people are really something. They've gotten up early to get here. But now that I'm here with you, and I think about the fact that you got up, missed the first hour of football, and came out in the rain, you're the people who are really impressive. So. As Rob mentioned, I'm a member of the Westminster Stewardship Commission, and I'm also the chair. And as chair, I have the dubious honor of being the first of five speakers to talk to you over the next four weeks about this annual campaign. I wanted to call us the show me the money speakers, but uh, Rob and Bethany said that was bad form. <laughs> so I'm not going to do that. As I was thinking about what to say to you today, and more importantly, how to say it, I looked at videos of past speakers. We actually have those. And I wondered as I watched those videos, um, if I can't be as dynamic a speaker as Jim Snipes, or as funny as Bill McLeod, or as heartfelt as Christina Hansen, whose shoes I've had to fill as chair, what can I be? And what I came up with is that I can be relatable. I know it doesn't sound as impressive or as cool, but that's what I've got. Now, the reason why I can be relatable is because I can say without hesitation that I know what you're going through, that I get it. These days when you are constantly being solicited for money. Just yesterday, I received in the mail solicitation letters from the National Audubon Society, St. Jude's Hospital for Children, Planned Parenthood, the World Food Program, UNICEF USA, Habitat for Humanity, and the Union of Concerned Scientists. No exaggeration, and that's just on one day. And that doesn't include the countless solicitation emails that flood my, Ill my inbox during a week, and I'm sure are in yours too. I'm also hit with requests over the phone when I answer it. <laughs> in person, I had a lovely young man show up on my doorstep dressed down in his football outfit asking for a donation for the team. And now on the radio, when I tune into one of my favorite stations, KQED, it's their pledge drive. So it seems that everyone, everywhere, all the time, wants my financial support for something. And these requests are almost always for very good causes. So what am I, what are you, what are we supposed to do as generous, kind-hearted Christians? Years ago, I read Rick Warren's The Purpose Driven Life. And while I didn't agree with everything in that book, I was struck by something that he wrote in chapter three. And the title of that chapter was, What Drives Your Life? He said, if you want life to have impact, focus it. Stop dabbling. Stop trying to do it all. Do less. Prune away even good activities and do only that which matters most. Wow. Get rid of even the good? I've never forgotten that, and I've also come to see that it applies to our giving as well. We've got to focus where we give, and we've got to try to stop taking care of all needs. There are so many good causes out there, but if you want to make an impact and keep from going crazy, you've got to prioritize. And that's the thought I want to leave you with today. I strongly encourage you to make a list of five to seven causes, organizations, that mean the most to you, that impact your life the most, that, that get you the most excited to give to and include Westminster Presbyterian Church. Because you can have an impact here. 
As Rob mentioned, today's the official launch of our 2023 stewardship campaign, and for the next four Sundays, you're gonna hear from other members about why they choose to prioritize this church and how it's impacting their lives. In fact, in the packet of materials that you've received about the campaign, you'll see that that's our theme for this year's drive. What does Westminster mean to you? And what would life be like if Westminster weren't here? And that's another suggestion I have for you today. Take the time to read the letter in the packet. There are two good stories in here. And really think about what you're able to pledge this year and whether you can possibly make an increase, make an even bigger impact. If you prioritize, it's possible and would mean so much to this church community and indirectly to others we serve in the community outside the church. What you give funds 75% of this church's operation. Westminster, your church, depends on you and you're prioritizing it. And if you really think about it, you depend on Westminster too. I know I do. Please, open your packet, pull out the card, read the letter, and then after you've thought carefully, fill it out, either mail it back or drop it in the collection plate, or if you'd prefer, pledge online. Um, it's not difficult, and if you get stuck, you can call Tracy in the office. She's wonderful. She'll help you. Now's the time. Make Westminster one of your top five and put your faith into action. Thank you. Thank you, Mary Beth, and thanks to all who worked so hard on this campaign. As Bethany noted in the first service, we've seen a lot of uh, Mary Beth and others in the office lately, uh, not just because she wants to say hi, but because there is a lot of work to be done to make sure this keeps going for all of us to enjoy. Is Jeff here? Jeff Schenkel was, oh, are you supposed to get him, Cammie? Okay, I'll just find, I'll, I'll do my best and yeah, you could try. Yeah, you wanna go try? Uh, Jeff was going to speak to us about the Sunday Supper Club, so I lament that he is not here. <laughs> oh dear God, my pain cries out with fountains of tears. Um, uh, I'll say a little bit before he comes in, and if he's busy doing something he needs to be doing, then we'll just let it go. But uh, really, what we're trying to do with the Sunday Supper Club is respond to the strategic impulse of the church, which is to turn more outward. And see, who are we not serving with our current way of doing what we do? For whom does Sunday morning just never work? For whom does the traditional service in which you stand or you sit and listen to a guy stand up in a robe or a gal in a robe and talk for 20 minutes not work? And so Jeff and his entrepreneurial spirit came up with the dream of doing a Sunday evening kind of alternative way of being in community as Christians in sharing and conversation and in, in meals um, in a sacramental way. And so the Sunday Supper Club was born and we're seeding it, it with people from this church in hopes that it might have a robust enough following to engage people from the outside community that maybe in a different way we can serve them. And now that I've filibustered long enough, <laughs> Jeff has walked into the room. And I had nothing left to say. So your timing is perfect. Thank you, Mr. Smith. Uh, yeah, we, uh, we're doing an activity with our high schoolers where they're supposed to get to know each other on a deeper level. It, went, it was going so deep, I totally forgot about this. I'm very sorry. So a lot of you have heard about this. We've started this thing called the Sunday Supper Club. And about a year ago, uh, five of us got together, Carol Kaufman, Jeff Healy, Elsa Merriman, and Ben Sumrall, and we just had this feeling that we don't do enough for the people that church doesn't work for. You know, about 96% of Marin County does not attend church on any given Sunday before COVID. So that means 96% of the people in our county have looked at what happens here and just, I, I say, I try to use stronger language and say they've just rejected it. And it doesn't mean that it doesn't work for you. Like what we do here is an immense blessing for all of us here, me included. 
And so we thought about, okay, well, what do the people outside of the walls of our church want? What do they need? What do they desire? And that set us on several months of passing articles and videos and praying and talking about it. And the three things that we came across was, first, community, like needing connection in our lives. Second was joy, and more specifically, we just want to laugh. And the third is a sense of purpose, that we need something beyond our family unit, some altruistic thing to live for. Community, joy, and purpose. And so we thought about, okay, well, what would a gathering look like that addressed those three needs? Because quite frankly, you could come to our church or any church in Marin County on a Sunday morning and never talk to a single person. And again, if that's you, there's nothing wrong with that, but we're, we're meeting those people's needs. But for everybody else, like again, if you're needing community, it's hard to find it on a Sunday morning unless you kind of know the language or have someone that can shepherd you through the process. Uh, you know, we do laugh a fair bit here, but sometimes it's with a language that doesn't make sense to an outsider. Uh, you know, this being here does fulfill a sense of purpose for people who grow up with a certain faith tradition. So what would a gathering look like that addresses those three needs? We uh, just started with a blank sheet of paper, and what we came up with was what is now called the Sunday Supper Club. And so some of you have been there, but let me explain what it is. Uh, about 4.30, you arrive, and you're given a job <laughs> and a name tag. You, we cook a meal together every Sunday. We, we've, uh, we met for our official lunch last Sunday. We'll be doing it again today. We're making sweet and sour chicken with garlicky green beans uh, and brown rice. And so we make a meal together. People are chopping pineapples and chickens and grilling. People are setting up tables together. And so it's a more natural and organic way to meet people. You cannot come to the Sunday Supper Club and not talk to you know at least 10 people. That's just natural. Uh, about five o'clock, we have a prayer over the meal. There's bread and uh, grape juice at every table. We have a passage read, and this all happens in a couple minutes. Just to introduce everyone, pray over the meal, and we all have a seat around the table. We knew that we needed to make this intergenerational, and so many of you have seen, I have twin eight-year-olds. They're literally climbing the walls some Sundays, and they have a lot of energy. To think that they are going to want to sit at a table with adults for that long, we need to have something creative. So there's usually the meal is interrupted early on by some goofy skit characters that come and do a game that involves everybody in some way, shape, or form, so we can just have some laughs. And then instead of a sermon, someone will share just a, a conversation starter. And for the last 30 to 40 minutes of our dinner, we talk about some important topic together. This, the theme for this month is how tragedy uh, how tragedy brings growth to our lives, and each week is a little different take on that. So last week it was about how tragedy brings us together with people that we didn't know before. And so we talk about that around the table. We clean up together, and that is a worship service for us. It starts again by working together, uh, having a prayer with a meal, conversing and laughing with one another, and then cleaning up together. And hopefully it does build community, joy, and purpose. And the reason why we bring it up here is because we want to invite you. We want to include you, and particularly to include and invite people who, again, Sunday mornings just doesn't work for them, whether it's because it's in the morning, whether it's because uh, the language that we use is a little too, a little too much for them. Uh, there are a lot of different reasons to use the Sunday Supper Club uh, for your own spiritual benefit, but for that of others. So uh, I'll talk about it again in a little different way uh, in the future, but we want you to know this new kind of movement has begun, and we would love to have you participate in it with us. So thank you. Thank you. I'm going to go back to being distracted by yeah. the conversation. So. Thank you, Jeff. Not just for today, but for what you, the substance behind what you shared. Our closing hymn is number 785.
And now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God who is Father and Mother of us all, and the sweet communion of the Holy Spirit be with you this day and every day. Amen.